You are Locked On Horn Frogs. Your daily podcast on the TCU Horn Frogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Welcome to Locked On Horn Frogs, your daily TCU podcast. TCU football is 2 0. I'll just say that right away because if you listen to the rest of this, you might wonder are they really 2 0? They are. They're 2 0. And that's something to be celebrated. They get a victory over Cal. 34 to 32. And I think if you told people before the season, that would be the final score of that game. Uh, folks would say, okay, well, Hey, they won. Now after they lost to Nevada and that Vegas spread got so um, lopsided towards the end of the week, maybe expectations change, but bottom line is they won. And I want to dive into that, but first Matt and Matt Jennings is on the show with us. I hey, want to ask you, don't worry. I'm not going to ask you about the Falcons, but I want <laughs> I wanted to ask you, can we discuss how Florida State lost to Jacksonville State? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, Please. Yes. Let's do that. So, yeah, if somehow you missed it, um, Florida State was up by what, like three, four, something like that. You know, they're up by a touchdown. It's a one possession game. One possession game. Jacksonville State has the ball about their own 35 yard line. Um, games about to end Florida State's like okay we didn't play well but we're going to escape out of here with a victory whatever and the Jacksonville State QB throws a Hail Mary it doesn't get to the end zone but the receiver catches it about the 20 yard line makes a couple moves and scores a touchdown and it's one of the dumber endings I mean as someone who is a lifelong Cowboys fan I've seen some dumb ways to lose football that ranks up there. And um, the the funniest thing about the whole deal is <laughs> the radio call, the Florida State radio call, the color commentator, who I don't know who this man is, but he starts yelling, I told you, you can't let anyone behind you. Like, he just starts yelling this out. And then as the play-by-play man is finishing up the call, he just, you hear him throw the headsets down and just walk because <laughs> he was so disgusted. So Matt, how did you take that in last night? It was, it was great. I didn't get to, I didn't see it live, uh, but nobody the, did. The, yeah. I, w- the, it was the first thing I saw when I opened Twitter up in the morning and, and people were like, you have to watch this. And I was like, what happened? And then it became very clear what happened. And yeah, the, uh, and it's funny because to your point, like it, the Florida state radio call is the best way to experience that play because you get two um, vastly different reactions to that play. You ha- you have the Florida State um, play-by-play um, called the Brian Estridge equivalent for Florida State, who's just like um, calling it like it's a normal game and like almost yeah. like almost as excited for Jacksonville State because it was such an improbable play and like trying to be a good sport about it. And then on the flip side, you have the the um, the, the analyst who is just absolutely losing it throws the headset is 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 complaining as if he was on the sideline and had told the players who had missed the tackles and the coverages moments before what they should have done and it's very very funny it's also super funny there's like been like this revisionist history that's happened afterwards because norvell came out after the game and said oh yeah we were in cover two man um like we, we were trying to keep him in front of us and then 
a couple like film guys who I was watching, who I was, who I follow on Twitter were saying like, actually they weren't really in cover two man. So either they were lying or they just like completely miscommunicated because they were actually in cover one. There was only one safety deep and they were just on the last play of the game when Jacksonville state needed 50 plus yards to gain what were in the world were they doing? So like, it, it, it would make a whole lot of sense if Florida state actually didn't know what they were actually trying to run in that moment. And then they just like, didn't there was no urgency in their attempt to tackle at all no. it was very much like arm tackles while standing straight up and it was just it was it was a very hard swing from last week after they took Notre Dame to overtime and like really looked oh man like this like Florida State maybe they're finally trying to maybe they're trying finally figuring out and I'm like nope nope never mind never mind yeah the Norvell experience has not been a good one so far my theory is that they probably just arrogantly thought that the kid couldn't throw that far. I, you know, I didn't watch any. Oh, games, sure. But they figured, okay, they're going to run one of the, you know, plays that never works, except for when it does, which is you, you dump it off to somebody and then you scramble around and throw some laterals and hope that you can get some open field. But that's not what happened. Uh, but you're right. It was bizarre. Like the tackling attempts. And I don't know if it was just the pure shock of like, oh, no this could be happening, um, but they couldn't get it done. So it, the moral of the story is, um, if you were feeling down about the win on Saturday, it could be worse. It could be much worse. Uh, you could have lost at home to Jacksonville State like the Florida State Seminoles did, and that is unfortunate. Okay, Matt, so let's talk TCU and Cal. Um, and I want to actually start on defense because we'll, we'll break down the offense plenty here in a moment. But um, it was frustrating in that first half to watch. And it's not the first time we've seen this happen in the TCU game. But C.J. Caesar was just getting beat. And time and time again, I mean, Cal was licking their chops, ready to go after him. Um, They didn't really adjust. I know you also want to shed some light on what you felt like was going on in the back end with T.J. Carter and some of the safety play. But I, of all the things that I kind of thought might happen, I did not have Cal exploiting TCU with their passing, with their deep passing game on my bingo card going into this one. So what did you make of uh, the extended kind of, um, I guess, cluster that was going on back there for, for the first half? Yeah, I mean, this was the full Gary Patterson experience in terms of the in terms of the way he called this game and like the results that happen. Right? Is this is this has been his mo forever? It is a feature. It is not a bug. Um, either um, it is going they the TCU defense is going to create a bunch of negative plays and they're going to force three and outs and they're going to frustrate the opposing team the whole time, um, or they're going to give up a, a, a bunch of long, deep passes, um, many of which for touchdowns. And, uh, and that's how, and those big chunk plays are going to be how the opposing team um, kind of stays in the game or just like blows right by TCU, right? That's been the Gary Patterson defense experience because he has such, um, he calls his, his, his plays so specifically and he gives everybody a very specific assignment and he doesn't leave a, uh, you know, one high or two, si- two high safeties back because um, he trusts what he's calling in any given play. And if his players are um, in the right positions and they don't miss tackles, great. 
it works well. And then when they're not, um, you get um, what you saw uh, on Saturday with Cal where they scored. Uh, they had five plays of 20 yards or more that uh, in total was 241 yards on five plays. Um, that's what happens. The good news is only one of those plays was in the second half. So they did tighten things up, make whatever adjustments they needed. And it was better in the second half for sure. Um, but yeah, that first half was, was tough to watch in that regard with Caesar. And then with Carter, I, I feel bad for him. We, we talked about this a little bit last week, but CJ Caesar, um, I, I, this happens all again, this is a feature of the Gary Patterson defense. You're, you've got your number one lockdown corner and then uh, who, you know, whether it's a Travis Hodges Tomlinson, a, a Jeff Gladney, a Rantin Tejada, a Jason Barrett, whoever it is. And then the next guy is the guy who gets picked on all the time. And a lot of the time he doesn't have that too high safety look behind him. And so if he misses his assignment, that guy's running for a long time before anybody stops him. And that has, we saw that happen to Caesar last year, a few times, we're going to see it happen a few more times within this year. He's still growing and developing. Um, you feel bad that his play calling puts him in that position. That's kind of an unfair position to put him in, but that's what Gary's doing. And I felt the same way about TJ Carter, TJ Carter, the uh, transfer from Memphis, another guy who I think it just got put in some rough positions yesterday. I kind of don't understand why he's starting at weak safety unless Nuke Bradford is not healthy. Cause I feel like we've seen some really nice things from Nuke Bradford over the last couple of seasons. And so I feel like Bradford and, and Bud Clark and LaKendra Van Zant is your best safety trio. So I'm really curious as to what the, the what the reasoning is behind that lineup decision that they're rolling with is um but they both had a couple rough moments yesterday like i said they they tightened it up a little bit in the second half it got better they only had the one um 20 plus yard play that they uh pass that they gave in the second half so that's better um but uh but yeah it's not encouraging that that happened against cal who um not known for having explosive passing offense to your point yeah well and i'm also wondering and i'm actually not as worried about the SMU game as some people are from a defensive perspective, just because I think the combo of the bye week helping potentially get some guys healthy slash preparation slash revenge from two years ago could be a good recipe for success. However, I was, as you were talking about this, I was thinking, I mean, you're, you're going to have this to a certain extent, but really since 2017, which that defense was good and they were good from the jump. The new MO, I guess you could say, is that that side of the ball has really struggled early. I mean, they got knocked around with, by Iowa State last year. That was mainly in the run game. Um, I don't know. It just seems like there are more, you know, 30-plus point scoring games from opponents in the first three weeks of the season the last three or four years. And, and I don't know if that's just people kind of catching up eventually they figure it out um but it, it does feel like there are more early season woes than there have been in the past for for tcu on that side of the ball yeah smu since we're talking about the smu in 2019 is another instance yeah. of that that comes to mind where like they came out and and tcu really was kind of caught flat-footed and suddenly they were in a shootout that they weren't ready for um yeah so i i i think there's probably a little bit of credence to what you're talking about um, you know, it's one of those things where it, it, even going back to, you know, early days in the big 12 or even the Mountain West, like when Gary can have a really veteran team that's played together a lot 
we played a ton of snaps together and like everybody plays really assignment sound um then this kind of thing doesn't happen as often and so yeah i think as they've had some younger teams that are maybe like more athletic on the whole and maybe more talented overall but um you do have young players um whether that's at safety or corner and linebacker who um are getting thrown to the fire a little bit earlier than um than maybe they would have back in the days of the mountain west where gary maybe had the the luxury of letting those guys develop for a little bit longer Mm -hmm. before being forced to put them out there because he wasn't worried about you know a fourth year senior who maybe wasn't the most fourth or fifth year senior who wasn't the most athletic dude but like knew his assignments knew the defense backwards and forwards and could and could keep up with new mexico and 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 you know the also rans of the mountain west so that might be part of it sure yeah no i'd agree with that so turn into the offense for a second first i just want i just want you to do this for me give me a grade for the tcu offense yesterday because they did end up with over 500 yards they scored 34 points it wasn't a cheap 34 points. I mean, it wasn't based off turnovers and good field position. They were having to drive down the field. Um, but they definitely left some meat on the bone, and the start was disastrous. So if you had to give a grade, what would it be for yesterday's performance on offense? I don't know. I feel like it's <laughs> it's it's one of those things that's like, can I grade it in segments? Because if we're grading the second half, you give it like a B plus. If you grade it like the first half, it's like a C minus at best. If you're grading just Zach Evans and Quentin Johnson, it's an A plus. If you're grading the offensive line, it's probably a C, you know, <laughs> if you're, yeah. so, you know, it's, it's just a very weird kind of thing to kind of, uh, uh, you know, there are so many different facets of it. It's hard to pick out one thing. I will say I was encouraged. I, you know, I know some, some people came out of the game on Saturday feeling really frustrated with the offense, but for them to have had such as bad of a start as they did, and for them to have the coaching staff on offense that they have, which is one that you and I have not expressed the most faith in forever, mm-hmm. uh, for a long time, for them to have made the adjustments that they needed to then get to 34 in the second half after having such a, such a dismal first half um, and do it by doing the thing that we've been screaming at, that, that the whole fan base has been screaming at them to do for a while, which is just get the ball in the hands of your best players um, and, and in space when you can and, and, and let them let that talent that you've worked so hard to recruit actually work for you. Um, the fact that they made that adjustment and were able to do against a, and, and were able to run the ball as well as they were against a Cal team that coming into the game, you and I talked about being really good against the run. So all of that context, I think made me feel weirdly more optimistic about it coming out of the game. Um, you know, uh, I was looking at this morning. I thought this was funny. Um, you know, Peter says in first Peter four, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. I would say Zach Evans and Quentin Johnston cover a multitude of sins. Because they really do. It's like, it's really wild when you have four and five star athletes, how they can really make um, uh, a game plan that kind of got thrown out the window in the middle of the game suddenly look a whole lot better. Well, that's a great segue. Um, it's been a while. I would say, the 20, if you were explaining 2015 TCU football to somebody, you would tell them Trayvon Boykin and Josh Doxson were the two best players on the field most of the time. And because of that, they won a lot of games they probably shouldn't have won. Um, there were a bunch of wins that year that were just like, oh, okay, that probably shouldn't have happened. And they haven't had anybody like that. I mean, I think 
you know, Rager in the defense won them the Baylor game a few years back, and he was a special player. Um, but Zach Evans had – he had what I would call a cool 190 yesterday. And, <laughs> and what I mean by that is, like, he had a great game, and you knew he had a great game. But you looked at the stats afterwards, and you said, oh, wait, he had 100 – like, he was pushing 200 yards, yep. and he was averaging nine yards a carry. Um I mean, what are your thoughts on just the difference that makes? And, and Quentin had a great game, five for 95 and two touchdowns. Having guys that are, like, game changers, um, because as much as we've lamented play calling and consistent quarterback play, yeah, you're right. Having skill guys like that makes up for a lot of the the issues you could be having. Yeah, no, Evans is just – a monster and it really it makes you scratch your head a little bit as to why he wasn't getting on the field earlier last year um I'm curious to know what the story is there as to why the coaching staff would have just kept him on the sideline for as long as long as they did um but man he was just he was on a different tier point you know when you've got the two best athletes on the on the field um you feel you just feel a lot more comfortable about the outcome <laughs> um, it feels a lot less in doubt no he was he was phenomenal yesterday he he has such a deadly combination of of like slipperiness like the ability to elude tackles and 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 get out of contact but at the same time power through it um I thought the offensive line in the run in the run game was better than in pass blocking yesterday but they weren't creating massive holes for him on a regular basis but he would you know he would you know get contact every like two yards beyond the line of scrimmage and still turn it into an eight or a ten yard gain on a routine basis yesterday and that was that's just something that you that's you know you can't teach speed you can't teach you can't teach strength um and the ability to just blow through people um and just like knock them, knock them to the ground. And so to see him do that on a really consistent basis, I can't remember the last time a TC running back had 22 carries in a game. I don't think that's necessarily sustainable if you want him to stay healthy for a full slate this year. Um, but it's nice to have a guy who can turn those 22 carries into almost 200 yards when you need it. Um, I thought his, his, half time, his score right before halftime was like the biggest play of the game easily because it absolutely changed the complexion of the game and made it one possession um, uh, and, and really just kind of allowed them to, to, to um, go to the game plan that won them the game. If they had, been, if they had come out of halftime and, and been down two possessions or more, um, maybe they, you end up throwing the ball 60 times in a game and that's just not something that TCU is really equipped to do. And to your point, Quentin Johnston's just a freak and is just so much fun to watch and um mm -hmm. yeah it's it's like i said it's it i i felt oddly calm even though the lead changed multiple times in in the second half and uh i i felt i didn't really have a, a lack of confidence in their ability to turn uh to 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 come out of that game with a win when i will feel a lack of confidence is when they eventually and they will this will happen at some point this season they'll run into a team that has the personnel to be like, okay, cool. We're going to put eight guys in the box on every play and we'll play one-on-one -on -one coverage in the secondary across the board. And we're going to ask Max, we're going to say, okay, Max Duggan, you make throws against man coverage one-on-one -on -one and throw your guys open. Uh, Cause we're going to dedicate everything to stopping Zach Evans. 
And if TCU can find a way to do that in that game, then that's going to be what takes them to another level. Um, I'm, that's the thing that's most concerning to me um, in terms of what their ceiling is for sure. Well, and, and the workload situation is going to be pretty fascinating because Gary said post game, ideally he'd like to give Zach 10 to 12 touches, which yeah. my first reaction to that is no, please like, don't, don't do that. Like, don't just limit yourself that way. But I, I mean, I get it. Um, and you would hope, you know, there's, there's games in the season, like you would hope, against SMU, you play well enough that he doesn't have to carry the ball 20 plus times. Um, but if you find yourself in a dogfight again, then it just might be what what's available to you to, to try to get a victory. Um, okay, so I feel like we, we do this every week, but let's, let's get into it. Uh, Max Duggan, um, I mean, he was good yesterday. Like the final line was pretty solid. He made some plays. He had a big throw to Tay Barber on third down. He also had a terrible pick six and just could not hook up with guys deep. So where do you stand on this continued debate sort of topic that we keep coming back to of is this play calling? Is this, you know, offensive line play? Is this the quarterback that leads to inconsistency with with the offense it's an unsatisfying answer but it, it, it I think it's the true answer is that it is a little bit of everything I will say I think at this point he's in year three we know what he is right we we yeah. know he's a guy who is uh, a um an incredibly talented athlete and um can can uh create you know, a few really spectacular plays and uh, per game. And I think the, the thing that's smart as a play caller is to play to his strengths in terms of like really like emphasizing his ability to make plays with his legs and then pick your spots where you want to try and um, use the defense keying on him running to then throw over the top. Um, they were trying really, really hard to force the issue throwing downfield early yesterday. And Max is Max arm strength has never been the issue with Max. It's all about control and accuracy and consistency. Right. Um, he's not anywhere. I don't feel like anywhere near as, um, as bad as, as Sean Robinson in that regard, as like where Sean Robinson like had, like could throw the ball 70 yards in the air, but just like, could never connect. Max Duggan's never been that, but he does have, he does have consistency issues there. So I think instead of like trying to do like, we're going to throw a fade on first down on every drive and hope that something happens, like set it up, right? Like run the read option with, with, with Zach Evans, do the inverted veer, you know, QB keepers up the middle, whatever you want to do, get the defense creeping up, creeping up, creeping up. And then you do play action or an RPO where you get an opportunity to throw it, throw it over the top that they really were trying to force the issue rather than letting the game kind of come to them when, again, they have the talent to like, you can run the ball and like establish that and let him get comfortable running in the open field and all of that before you really try and do that. And then in the meantime, when you do need to pass, like we saw what Quentin Johnson can do on a quick comeback route and turn it into uh, you know, turn it into a long score yesterday. Like, it is okay to just get him or Darius Davis or Tay Barber, get one of them um, the ball in space 
like eight to 10 yards beyond the line of scrimmage and let them go to work. You know, it, it does not need to be this uh, complicated. So all that to say, I think it is Duggan having limitations. It is also the play calling, not really understanding those limitations, but understanding the, like the vast potential that you can have when you have both him and Zach Evans and Quentin Johnston all in the field at the same time, you know, that's a, <laughs> there are things you can do with that group um, that make it so you don't have to like flail on offense for a half like you did on Saturday. <laughs> right. And I mean, you know, the other part of it, which is always there. And if you want to say this is an indictment on roster building, okay. But we know who Matthew Downing is. Um, we don't know who Chandler Morris is, but I think the fact that he's sitting third on the depth chart is telling, even if he's kind of struggling to figure out what exactly they're doing because he hasn't been there as long. Um, so he's he's the best option you have. And it's, I mean, it's one play, so I don't want to act like this is a, um, a great example for what they did all day. But the pick six, like it's a terrible throw, it's a terrible decision, he stares down the guy. But also it's third and 16 at your own five. And, and I, I don't know what route combo they're running on the other side because of the camera angle. But if, you're, if your play call is to have two receivers run hitch routes on that down and distance just to give Jordan Sandy some more room, like just hand the ball off. I mean, like what are, what are we even doing messing with throwing the football? But, again, one, one call in the course of a long game. And ultimately they found a way – to score um, later and get first downs when they needed to and, and get the win. Uh, Matt, going back to the defense for a second. So I know Gary said after the game, a lot of this was just a factor of Cal decided we're going to max protect, like we're going to keep guys in. We're not letting the pass rush get there. Um, but there was no pressure, which makes everything harder. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll get Coleman back at some point, hopefully in a couple of weeks here. But Again, I mean, that was a unit, the defensive line that started to make strides at the end of last year, but we're sort of back to, in these first couple games, um, clean pockets for the other team. And that, that's going to be a problem moving forward if they can't fix that. Yeah, you know, and we, we talked about this late last year, how, yes, O'Shawn Mathis had a, like, just was on, like, playing with his hair on fire to end the year last year, but, like, how much of that, how much of his production in terms of tackles for loss and sacks were was how much of that production was a product of the teams that they were playing. Cause they were playing Kansas and Louisiana tech and, and Baylor down the stretch um, and Texas tech and Henry Columbia again. And when they were playing Texas tech, who he, you got like three sacks in that game, you know, so it's, uh, you know, TCU got two sacks yesterday. They both came on blitzes. One was D winters uh, and one was Kendrick Van Zandt. Um, you need to be able to generate pressure with four guys. And Gary says he wants to generate pressure with three guys sometimes. Okay, great. But yeah, to your point, like, um, I, I think they miss Kyrie Coleman a lot. And, you know, hopefully, the, to your point, like, hopefully they get, they get him back soon. Because I think that's really the thing that unlocks the Gary Patterson defense and lets them do all the things that they want to do in the back end is that, um, you know, all the complex coverages and, and, and different, uh, you know, uh, things they want to do back there in the secondary are all um, enabled by the fact that whatever they're doing, they're not going to do it for very long because 
the quarterback's going to end up on his back if he's back there, if he's, if he stands in the pocket for too long and the best Gary Patterson defenses have had at least one dominant pass rusher or a dominant pass rusher and like a complimentary guy who can, who can make stuff happen. Like the prototypical example of that in recent years was obviously Ben Banigou and LJ Collier. And they don't, you know, O'Shawn Mathis, I think, honestly, but at this point in his career, he looks like he should be an LJ Collier to somebody else, to a dominant guy. And I feel like Kyrie Coleman has the potential to be that. I really liked some of the stuff that I saw from him last year, but obviously he's not out there and they don't have another guy, at least at the moment, who has the athleticism and the speed and the, and the pass rushing skills and savvy to, to make the other team, make the other quarterback sweat. Um, so right now they're having to just, you know, Jerry rig it with, you know, linebacker and safety blitzes and try and make it work. Um, I'm curious, <laughs> all that to say, yes, I think when Coleman comes back, some maybe we have a different conversation, but right now that to me, that's as probably the most concerning thing, the stuff we talked about earlier with Caesar and Carter and stuff like that's, like I said, price of doing business when you're running a Gary Patterson defense, I think the pass rush stuff dating back to last season remains the thing that's that's most concerning and puts puts a, a hard cap on what they can be defensively um until they can kind of unlock it who is the dude that looks like riffraff matt boson yeah white, matt white boson. Guy yeah it was it was yeah it was boson and um and banagoo and boson got named an all-american in um was it 16 it was either 16 or 17 um based on I think he had like five sacks against Baylor that year and like that's and that's the thing that thrust him to the to 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 the status of being an all-american um yeah oh man that was wild or like before that like when you had like James McFarland like some rotating combination of uh James McFarland and Josh Carraway and Terrell Lathan and 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 like you just had this deep stable of like either you had you, you had one dominant guy or you had a stable of uh of guys who all could get in and, and do some stuff Mike Tuaua and those guys and they do not have that right now and so like that's a little bit of an, to your point um a little bit with quarterbacks I think that's uh with roster building there I think it's a little bit of an indictment of of, of their roster building and roster building and identification and development of talent at that position, which is weird um, because they've been pretty good at it historically. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. Yeah, Matt Boson also had a big game against Oklahoma State and one of the deep yeah. cut, like, like that's a deep cut. That's a great win um, in Stillwater. Anyway, you want to talk about, no, but you want to talk about that was when you were trying to come up with another, like, um, when you're talking about like dominant, um, like, individual performances by a skill player uh Darius Anderson in that in that game against Oklahoma yeah. State in 2017 is the is the one that comes to mind immediately of uh, you know that's the only other time since Aaron Green was on campus that like I felt like they had um uh, an athlete of Evans caliber um in between those two guys like Kyle Hicks was a really like consistent dude but was not um was not like the uh the game breaker Darius Anderson when he was healthy like did that against Ohio State did it against Oklahoma State did it against Texas you know I would have loved to see an alternate timeline where his uh uh you know his injury situations uh turned out a little bit better that's always a fun thing to do I mean let's just remember some guys let's remember Darius Anderson let's remember Kennedy Snell you remember Kennedy Snell anyway sorry that's a that's a deep cut different one 
Yeah, he was fast, 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 fast. And then middle of the season, he was gone. <laughs> yeah, well, we have some trouble with that too sometimes. That's another podcast for another day. Uh, I, was, I was running down like the dominant. Anyway, never mind. There have been <laughs> there have been some dominant players that have come through as of late that we can't really speak of in the terms that we'd like to because of things that have happened. But Kevontae Turpin, you're killing it in German football, brother, and I, I wish you the best. Anyway, bye week next week. That'll be good. Enjoy some college football. I'll be back tomorrow. Matt Jennings will be back in a couple weeks after the SMU game. And this has been Lockdown Horn Frogs, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day.